This is Coda Radio, episode 353 for April 15th, 2019. Dakota Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. My name is Wes, and I'm joined once again by our returning hero, the patron saint of Pop OS, the one, the only, Mr. Michael Dominic. Happy Monday, Wes, and uh, special thanks to Chris for filling in for me last week. You've had some other things to distract you. Most notably, you've been playing with an eGPU setup, and I've been following along on Twitter. We'll have some links to, to the threads of you showing off some of the pictures. Maybe you could tell us about what you've been doing. But before we do, maybe we need a little motivation, because not everyone's lucky enough to be in a position where having an eGPU enclosure or setup or anything like that makes sense, and people might not be familiar with just, just what the point is. Yeah, so there's there's a few things here, right? This is more of a testing it out for a customer situation. So this is an eGPU that I have that I probably won't have for very long. But I did take advantage of the situation by testing it on actually all three operating systems, so Windows, Mac, and Linux. Oh, running the full gamut. I like it. I'm running the full gamut. And now, the question as to why you would want an eGPU, I, I think is, is pretty interesting, Wes. When you think eGPU, what, what pops into your head? Uh, mostly, I think about gaming or maybe some sort of machine yeah. learning application. So th- this use case is a, a compiling some core ML stuff on the Mac. Um, that is really interesting. Like my experience with the eGPU has been radically different on all three operating systems, and I, I guess we should start with the one that I actually intend to use it on Mac OS, um, where. And, and maybe you could review a little bit, too, about, like, just, just what, like, what tools are you using? What's your actual setup look like here? Yeah, so it's the um, OWC enclosure. It's one of their standard ones. Um, and we'll have a link in the show notes to it. But it, I think they only make two. So it's the Thunderbolt one, right? Um, the card is a AMD Sapphire RX 560. Yes, that's correct. I'm just looking at it right now, 560. That is that card has the advantage of being relatively affordable um, and not being NVIDIA, meaning it's compatible on macOS without any voodoo. It's also this configuration is also one of the configurations recommended by Apple. So this is a pretty vanilla configuration without going all, you know, uh, Apple Store black magic. Right. You're not doing crazy stuff. Right. And you're not modifying KXX or going on strange forums and downloading random firmware. You do have to build the uh, eGPU case, which my wife very kindly did for me. Aww, so supportive. That's amazing. Yes, but once we got the parts and put everything together, it's a pretty simple setup. So you're just assembling sort of the actual structure that holds the graphics. Yeah, and then from there, once you have it assembled, it's basically a PCI slot. Um, so it's pretty straightforward. I have to say it's a... Um, I have very mixed feelings on eGPUs for this kind of use. Because you you get into this insane situation of your biggest concern becomes cables. 
Um, I don't know. I don't know if you know this, Wes, and I, I imagine many of our listeners don't because I didn't. So Thunderbolt is not Thunderbolt, and Thunderbolt three cables are not all made alike. Oh no! I mean, it could be pretty pretty confusing between Thunderbolt and USB C and all the different sorts of stuff that can actually be bundled on those different sorts of connections and connectors. Yeah. So first off, USB C cables are completely useless for this, but they are indistinguishable for Thunderbolt cables visually. Other than a little lightning bolt that most manufacturers put on the ends of the cables. Right. We've got the same form factor from the outside, but negotiating and talking totally different protocols. Right. Then there's Thunderbolt 2 and Thunderbolt 3. You want Thunderbolt 3, but even if you get Thunderbolt 3, there's such a thing as active and passive cables, and you lose 50% of your bandwidth if you don't get an active cable. I imagine the active cables are um, considerably more expensive. Considerably, yeah. Um, And the truth is, most long cables you will buy are passive because there is this weird case where the passive cables can hit the 40 40 gigs per second if they're below, I think it's like half a meter. So the, the... So not only are you like limited uh, on incapacity, but you also have to start thinking really about your, how constrained your setup is yeah. going to be. Do you have enough room to still carry that bandwidth? Right. So if you want, like for me, my setup is too constrained. So like if you want an active, if you want a longer cable, you're automatically buying a Thunderbolt 3 active cable, which is more expensive. And you have to be really, really careful that it's an active cable. So that just is a bad feeling all around. You can't just go casually in an evening, select some parts, get them there and, and all going. You you need to put some thought into it. Yeah, this isn't like an arbitrary Amazon.com trip and you're done. Um, having said that, Amazon does, of course, sell all these parts. So next you get into like, okay, what cable is right for me? Well, if you're doing machine learning, I'm sorry, what card is right for me? The answer is always NVIDIA, unless you're on Mac OS. <laughs> Is that just because there isn't good driver support for modern NVIDIA cards after Apple stopped really chipping them? Yeah, I mean, there is there is some accidental driver support. So like Mac, this, this is definitely going to be foreign to non-Mac people. Mac bakes in its graphics drivers. So if the driver isn't there, it's just not going to work. Um, and there's a lot of, I mean, I would recommend you listen to, I think, ATP from a few months ago. There was like wild speculation and lots of rumors as to why Apple no longer ships NVIDIA parts. They used to, right? There used to be a choice between NVIDIA and AMD. I, I don't know if it's worth getting into that, uh, but the, the rumor is that there was a certain MacBook Pro that shipped an NVIDIA chip. It was horribly deficient in terms of reliability. And after that, there was no more NVIDIA chips. But the CUDA platform is effectively the standard for machine learning right now. So you're, if you're doing this on macOS, you're automatically taking, I, I won't say taking a hit, but you're I'm trying to think, Wes, you're, you're suboptimal, right? Right, you're already, I mean, I know, I know AMD's been putting lots of work to get more and compliance and, and, and yeah. be able to do more of that, but you're already, as you're saying, you're already in a position where you're not using what you would ideally give an infinite choice configure your setup to be well or if you were just like simply on windows right you <laughs> it's not even an infinite choice it's two choices yeah so okay you're on mac you're basically constrained to amd and please don't write in people that yes you can get nvidia working if it is related in drivers to the old uh, mac pros from 2011 i know but that itself is limiting you to uh, a, like a subset of that line on macOS, it's actually a pretty simple process. You plug in the Thunderbolt cable, great. 
because the drivers are built in. Things just auto magically work. That's awesome. On Windows, are you familiar with this operating system? Windows 10? Yes, I am, actually. You've heard of it. I don't currently have one um, installed or running, but I've certainly used it in other work capacities and, you know, helped other people configure it. Well, because it's Windows, <laughs> you first, and it took me about an hour to figure this out, need a driver for the Thunderbolt controller to get the Thunderbolt controller to... Wait, yeah, what? It's, like, yeah. the, you have to go out and find this and install it yourself? I had to download a special Intel driver. Oh, man. And what is it? It's 2019. Yeah, right? Windows Update couldn't find it. So it's like... So. Uh, I mean, they've gotten a lot better, right? I mean, we should be clear. That's maybe why it's a little surprising, is it's no longer the old Windows days of really crappy driver installations. Most stuff, or a lot of stuff anyway, kind of just works. But clearly not everything. You know what? They will never hit the glory that was Windows 3. So... You had to do that. You had to go get um, the AMD driver. If you're a Windows user, all of this sounds pretty kind of banal to you. If you're not a Windows user and you're used to apps getting your way to glory, well, this is pretty annoying. But it does basically work flawlessly with a few weird exceptions. So after you've got the, um, the driver for the Thunderbolt installed, then it recognizes that... Yeah, and you restart about 400 times. Yes. Yeah. And, and do you have to fiddle with this? Like, I mean, do you have to have it plugged in at the right time? Do you plug it in before you boot or after you boot or... So, so all three operating systems do not like it if you unplug the eGPU. Um, Linux just crashes. Like, Come on, man. Where's my hot swap PCI? No, no chance. Windows basically, I won't say blue screen, but locked up. Mac handled it about 50% of the times, but you could definitely see there was some like distress on the screen. It would like freeze up for a few minutes. Um, mm, it was clearly trying to, trying to cope here. Trying to cope and switch back to Intel, right? And we should say the hardware on the Mac side is a Mac Mini, and the hardware on the Windows and Linux side is a uh, current System76 Darter Pro. So this isn't low-end hardware we're using. Right, you've got some decent machines here, perfectly capable of, of handling this. See, the test was a little different, so like I did what I had to do on Mac OS, and it worked, and I was happy. The Windows, I naturally downloaded Steam, because, you know, if you have Windows, isn't that what that, the whole point of Windows? I thought so, yeah. It's, it's the gaming operating system, at least when the game that you want doesn't run on Linux. That is where you could tell, like, I tried one crappy cable and one good cable, and that's kind of where you can start seeing the difference. Um, but Linux, I want to talk to you about a very a package that's very special to me. Misa Utils. All right, break that down. For people who aren't um, Linux adventurers, what is this package and why do I need it? Well, when Satan invented graphics drivers, he did not build them into Linux like he did into Mac OS. So Misa Utils is basically, I mean, is it fair to say it's like the catch-all AMD graphics driver? I mean, I think it's 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 wider than that. Um, it's kind of just the, a lot of the open source graphics utilities, right? I mean, it's got all kinds of stuff integrated there, and it's ways that multiple different graphics drivers or a layer that you can use to talk to different graphics chips. So there is a proprietary driver you could use from AMD. Um, or I, I should say a special. I think it actually may be partially open source. You could do that, Wes. You could also host your system by running their bash script. And then have it not boot. Proprietary software is not ethical. In this case, it was morally bankrupt. I had to wipe and pave. So, yeah. Wait, really? So, so you ran the bash strip that they provided to try to try to get things set up and going. It asked for permission to reboot and then never booted again. Wow. Did you look at the script? 
I mean, like, what is it doing? No, it's huge. I mean, it's it's a bash script with like fifty files and like some of them are just like dot debs, like running executables. Um, this was, I, I think, I, I don't think I would be off base in saying this bash script is the equivalent of running like an XE installer in Windows, right? Like, you run it, you give it admin permissions, right, and then it's going to do whatever it needs to in theory to set up. And you hope you didn't just install a rootkit, right? Like, <laughs> yes. So that destroyed my system. Um, so I decided, why don't I just try the open source drivers? And they work excellently with the following exceptions. There is a big, big performance difference between Linux and Mac OS here, which if you think about it, kind of makes sense, right? Cause you're using generic open source drivers versus, um, you know, this is one of the Apple recommended cards. So, mm, yeah, right, right. They, they, in theory, have worked with their provider and got graphics drivers in, in there that are tuned, and they don't have the same sorts of qualms or problems with shipping proprietary right. stuff. I am going to use a the colloquial term kernel panic here for just defining a system crash uh, of any type, just to make this quicker, because we've been on this for a bit too long, I think. If any of the following happens under Linux, you are screwed. <laughs> Your system falls asleep. Your external monitor dims. Uh, by dims, I mean turns off for the power settings. You accidentally or intentionally unplug the graphics driver. You lose power to the eGPU enclosure. All of these will cause what I'm going to colloquially call a kernel panic, meaning you have to forcibly turn off the computer and you'll lose whatever data wasn't saved. It does not handle... like. Losing power, okay, right? It seems reasonable enough, like, okay, I right. get that, yeah. But going into suspension, causing... That's just normal, you know? Yeah, that no. just happens. And then I found that out by accident because I had to, like, go downstairs from my home office and get a glass of water and use the bathroom. And I guess five minutes went by, right? Like, <sighs> so... That's, that's... And then uh, probably, too, right? Like, if you if you knew that, you could have put your, your system in a state that could that could recover but more most likely you probably had some stuff open maybe not totally saved or that you were in the pro- middle of progress do you just have to reboot the whole machine then you reboot the whole machine i mean the workaround is pretty obvious you don't allow it to turn off external monitors or to hibernate that's not an ideal solution by any stretch um what i what i would say is you know i, I i'm going to do a whole write-up and i think we're going to cover egpus in more detail with like specs and uh um benchmarks in a few weeks oh yeah i am going to continue for the next couple weeks while i still have this hardware trying it out on linux i'm not sure that i can really recommend this if you're like a desktop linux user because just there's so many ways where your system just locks up and you lose your unsaved work i I just i I just don't think the experience is good enough right now and and i'm sad because this is the answer for you buy a laptop but you want to use it as a like workstation class machine every once in a while to do like TensorFlow or whatever. Especially because under Linux, you don't have that weird NVIDIA bar, right? You could, you could use NVIDIA and CUDA, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm hoping that like Ubuntu 1904 and that generation of uh, desktop OS fix this problem. I'm running 1810. Yeah. It's it's an interesting question of like, what's the right, I, I imagine at some point with enough effort, there's like a tuning or a configuration you can get that'll work well, as is usually the case for Linux. The question is, how arcane is that? And is it worth the cost? Well, e- even under Mac and Windows, like the eGPU support, you are in the cutting edge of like guys in their basements writing on forums. Like, 
it still seems kind of crazy to me that we can do that. You know, we can have a graphics card just totally separate, isolated outside the system and then plug it in and it shows up like it's on PCI. That's crazy. Well, I mean, just for the setup I have now, having a relatively affordable Mac Mini and an affordable Linux laptop and just being able to share the graphics card between them at will is... Boom. Yeah, that is huge. That's huge, right? And if I had like a Windows, you know, partition, it could also be shared there. I mean, that that's not nothing, right? Because the graphics card is the thing that goes out of day on your computer the quickest. Um, you know, and realistically, if you are just willing to make on the Linux side. Oh, I should add that that problem exists under Windows, too. That if it Wait, goes, really? into, yeah, if it goes into suspension, it may lock up. It didn't do it every time where it does under Ubuntu. And I should be fair, under for the purposes of this, it's Pop OS, not Ubuntu, but I would highly doubt that Ubuntu doesn't behave the same way because, you know, Pop is basically Ubuntu right now. Um, Mac somehow handles it, and I I have a sick feeling it's because Apple has some weird drivers they wrote. Right, this is, this is like their advantage on like they write their own drivers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of advantages when you can control the whole thing and you can think of the product as a whole, right? Right, but having said all that, I mean, if you are willing to just never let your computer go to sleep or like turn off a monitor, which there is such a thing as screen burn, so I don't know, or like turn it off correctly, like shut it down, it works. Yeah, right. Like it, if you're not like one of these, I have to have, you know, X months of uptime guys, this totally works. And I think in like six months, this is going to be the way most people should do things. I am not a huge gamer. So I imagine there is some big tax on gaming performance. But if you just like occasionally need to like compile a core ML library or a TensorFlow library, wow, this is a very cost effective and convenient way to do that. So take it for what what it's worth. I love it. That is a good summary. And I, I appreciate, you know, we've talked to some other people on the network about playing with eGPUs. I know Chris has had his adventures as well, but as you said, it really is sort of the, the forefront. So it's fun to have an experience report from someone with totally different motivations. Speaking of illicit motivations, um, can you tell me about stepping away from the Rails project, Wes? I thought you were a core member at this point. Oh, no. You know me in Ruby. Um, actually, who you're thinking of is Sean Griffin, Mike. I always get you guys confused. I'm sorry. I know, that'll happen, yeah. So it, it's been more than six years since his first commit to Ruby on Rails, and I think this article came came by way of the Coder Radio subreddit, where we find many interesting topics and feedback items, so you can go to coderadio.reddit.com, or even easier, just go to coder.show slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. Back to Sean, really, this stood out to me, one, just because, I mean, it's interesting to follow the stories of developers, particularly who end up working on open source projects and have been, you know, paid by companies to do so. What what also so we start with that, and then also sort of just the, the Rails topic that's, you know, perennial on this show. But where he's going is interesting too, and I think really speaks to you, Mike, because you've been playing with both Ruby and, I mean, we all know this is coming, Rust. So if you weren't familiar, he's actually been he's been playing around in Rust for a while. He created Diesel, which is a really interesting ORM for Rust. Yes, that is exactly what Rust needs. <laughs> Let us bring the inefficiencies of ORMs to Rust. We will pollute them. Oh, with my life. Oh, Mike. Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no taking that off the record. I think that's indelibly printed on the airwaves. You know, I, I'm very curious if anyone's listening. First of all, I think this makes a ton of sense. Rails, one of the reasons I recommend it is it's super mature. But if you are a hardcore open source contributor... 
one of the reasons it might be, you know, just a touch boring for you is it's super mature, right? Like, what angle? I mean, everything you said was true, Wes. Can't you, like, make a mistake every once in a while to make my life easier? I'll try. I mean, don't worry. There'll be plenty of opportunities for that. So, all right, let me put my tinfoil hat on. Like, Sean Griffin, great developer. I don't know him at all personally, but I've literally used this code, so yay. I've noticed kind of a lot over the last year or two of, like, core Rails contributors going to things like Elixir, and I don't want to get you excited, but, like, Haskell and Clojure, um, and, and now Rust is... Is there like some sort of like, are you like John the Baptist for, you know, all these functional languages or am I just seeing something that doesn't exist? Particularly on the, I think the biggest one's actually Elixir, right? And I guess I should say Phoenix because that's the framework. Well, I mean, maybe some of this could be explained too. I mean, you you had a tweet out earlier this week talking about some of the fun you've been having with Rust and and you're using it in combination with Ruby. I think it just shows that there's, there's areas that Ruby just doesn't always make sense for. Yeah. But it does have a particular style, um, a community style. So I think when when people leave it, there's going to be certain languages that appeal to them more. And uh, it's probably not going to be Java. Java. What year is it? Yeah, I know. But I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, still, it's still the favorite out there. I, I will say, like, I almost feel like, and I know we're going to get hate mail because this is definitely a technically incorrect statement. I almost feel like Ruby's a complete language and rails is a complete framework at this point yes yeah i think i mean i think you're right about that there's not a lot missing you might have there might be reasons that it's not a good fit for your particular project but it's certainly possible to do just about anything right i mean there was some interesting stuff regarding performance going around and if you're like a real language nerd you could uh be more interested than i am but like the truth is ruby is slow it's going to be slow compared to i don't know rust but FFI, baby, FFI, just FFI your way to glory and you're good. Um, as a closure guy, do you think maybe Mr. Sean should be looking at closure? It really depends on the, the problem space. I feel like part of the attraction, um, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but part of the attraction for people exploring Rust, particularly coming from something like Python or Ruby, is you know it's just it's just at such a different language level right suddenly the the garbage collector is gone you've got more explicit ways to manage memory and you have much tighter runtime performance or at least you 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 can you have a lot more control over that stuff but i think the difference and and obviously sean's helping as he's now involved with a lot of crates.io stuff is that rust has a really supportive community right I, i don't know that if you started doing this in c or c plus plus would you have nearly the same amount of stuff and rust feels like and we've talked about this on the show in some some recent episodes it's kind of at a weird little level, maybe slightly higher level than that, where, of course, you can target a lot of that stuff that, you know, really needs tight, totally compiled, embedded code. But it also has a lot of modern features and flexibility. So you can write stuff that that handles data in a rich, abstracted way that you might be more familiar from from Ruby. I mean, it's going to be totally different, but it's not going to be the yeah, same as like, doing that in C. Ooh, there's so many things you just said that on the Rust subreddit would ooh, be bad. So... I definitely agree with you that the Rust community is hyper welcoming. Like, um, you know, our friend L, right? L, L, uh, L from Linux Academy is kind of big on it's okay to be new. I would almost encourage developers to like gently reach out to the Rust community because one, they know their language is kind of weird. And like 
I can't speak for the entire Objective-C community because I haven't talked to Rick and Susan yet, but as 33% of the current Objective-C community, I can tell you, <laughs> um, we will yell at you, right? Like, it, you know, we're just going to yell at you if you start talking to us about like, you know, you know, I, don't, I might cry. I, mean, I don't even want to get into that. But Rust is like, yeah, we know this is weird. Don't worry. Now, I'm a little confused as to why you would want an object relational mapper in Rust, but I think guess you could do web development like it's totally not the way i i see rust in my kind of tool chest but certainly like i think the audience of the show i think people who would pay for linux academy um if you are looking to get involved in like an open source community but you don't want to get yelled at rust is a a nice place to go i mean there are many communities i don't mean to like paint like you know what the ruby community i i will give them this and the rails community have always been hyper inclusive and hyper nice um most of the time uh but you know there are some communities that aren't like that right like um and i i think you and i have both seen just being around and on the internet that like the rust people are very what's the right word um not forgiving, but very like if you mess something up and like if you like if you send a pull request that's wrong, instead of just saying rejected, you suck, they will actually like help you fix it. Yeah, it does seem like they're because, as you said, they they know they're coming, you know, they've built something new here. There's not, you know, Rust is combining lots of different stuff into it into something that is feels like its own thing. It feels like the whole community gets that you need to have some support here. It's not like, okay, well, you know, I've already done Java, now I'm learning Kotlin. You should be able to figure that out. They've got great documentation. Rust, it's a, it's a little bit different of a model, which is probably why it's so interesting too, right? Because the more the more languages you learn, there's, there's differences. Sure, they're all Turing complete. Sure, you can do all the same tasks, at least almost all the time. But I really think, and this is a perfect segue to an article I really wanted to talk about today, over on Thorsten Ball's blog, and the title is Learn More Programming Languages, Even If You Won't Use Them. And I just really, this this sentiment really resonates with me because, like, Rust is a good example. You just learn, you just start thinking about stuff in different ways. And we already know this from, from human language, right? There's all kinds of research showing the languages we speak and learn shape the way not only that we communicate, but the way that we think about things. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I can swear at people who don't like Objective-C in three languages, so. Yeah, right? And, and I feel like you start you start thinking about things differently. One one thing I notice a lot about, you know, people coming over, maybe learning Clojure or other functional programming languages is there's a big mental shift that you have to go through. You don't have, you don't have imperative techniques or iteration or for loops or any of the tools that you, you may have grown up on and are already familiar with. That's and right, kids, no for loop. Really, no for loop. It's gone. Suck sure, it up. there might be a for macro, but that's different, all right? At first, it might be painful, you know? You're thinking, how do I wrap my head around this? I, it's uncomfortable. Each thing is more work than it feels like it needs to be. Why am I doing these, these arcane invo- invocations of maps and filters and reduce? But afterwards, even if that's not the right language, even if you, you learned Haskell and it just doesn't make sense or your ops team really doesn't want to deploy it or you know, whatever the reason that you don't think you'll actually ever really use it, You've learned a new way to model problems. And like, just look at Java, right? With, with all the stream stuff that got added, those tools, even if it's in slightly different ways, 
are still totally relevant and might show you techniques that could be useful, even if it's not in that home language. Yeah, I know that. I mean, there's 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 like so much here, right? Like, I, I think it's also kind of what you're hitting on. It's important to learn different types of languages, right? Like if you're a C-sharp dev, going and learning Java, while not a bad thing by any stretch, is not the same as like, maybe you should like look at F-sharp, right? Or one of the more functional type languages. Or if you hate your self-closure. I mean, oh, sorry. You're absolutely right. I mean, probably you should learn... I don't know. It depends on how broad you want to go, but yeah. try, try to try to sample from everything, right? Try a stack-based language. Play with something like Forth. Maybe maybe go try um, something like Prologue. Definitely take an ML language for a spin, like Haskell or OCaml, and try something like Elixir, right? There's all sorts of different little paradigms, and regardless of how popular they might be, if you're interested in how computers work, if you want to be a better programmer, this isn't it's no guarantee, certainly not sufficient, but I would say it might be necessary. I, I would say it's absolutely necessary. I don't think you need to, I, I wouldn't hedge that one, right? Like, so there's also like differences in hardness, right? Like for instance, Go and Rust are often compared. Um, I have played with both. I think Rust is definitely a lot harder than Go, <laughs> but it's because it's so much more different than what you expect coming from the C family. Um, of course, C, C++, Jet C, I, I guess C Sharp, but I have a lot of issues with that. It's uh, the differences teach you, right? Like just like when Wes talks about closure, I start levitating because I'm being elevated onto a higher plane. When I mention Objective C, I mean you smell the sulfur, right? It's like ancient conjuring. Oh, right? it's strong today. Now, what about like if you're a Ruby developer learning Python? See, to me that. I don't know. I'll, I'll let you go first on that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I do think you're right. Uh, there's there's less to be gained there. Not nothing. And you might discover that, that you, you prefer that tool. But you're right. It is important to not just learn different languages, but, but learn different programming languages, different heritages of programming languages, so that you get those different styles of thinking and modeling about, about problems. And you might just discover that, you know, you're, you're totally charmed with it. Like, when I discovered that I really liked Clojure, sure, I'd done some, like, scheme in college and, you know, played with it every now and again and and would do python and occasionally think back to like oh this kind of feels a little bit of kind of functional from school that i remember and then i just started playing with it one day and it's changed the way i think about all, all kinds of different programming and same thing when you discover you know when maybe you're learning c and you have never done anything at that level of the stack and suddenly you're thinking about assembly and you're really getting to know memory and the model of the machine that c imposes on you all of that stuff is worth doing and i guess i just get a little worried sometimes Especially for like, the world seems to think of software development as like enterprise feature-based software development. And, and that's fine. That's really important. That's a huge motivator. It pays all kinds of people's salaries and makes lots of products that we all use. But I think you can't wholly separate that from computer science and computation and, and thinking about that. And if you just blindly learn one language and apply it in the same way, you're, you're just a practitioner. And I think really the value our field can bring is that we're, we're actively, it's a creative process. It's its not the same as just like blindly applying a standard configuration to a switch. Nothing against network engineers. They're, they're incredible and they have lots of stuff that isn't like that too. But you need we need the human side of creativity. And for that, you need a well-rounded and educated background. Yeah. Also, um, you know, your language of choice might, I don't know, get replaced by something terrible. Just, you know, I don't know what I could be referring to here. <laughs> no, no, we, we, no one, no one knows. Swift. Yeah, everybody should learn Haskell because then you truly attain a godlike status. Right, and you get to claim that you learned Haskell, right? You can just load that over everyone. And then you can change your profile pic to the old Hercules 90s TV show. And if you get that reference, congratulations. You should have learned Objective-C. You're old enough. 
Everyone's old enough for Objective-C, Mike. Come on. I thought that was the new hotness. You know, one day I'm going to write a framework in Objective-C just to spite you guys. I'm going to call it brackets. All the brackets. Speaking of things that are going to annoy the audience, how do you feel? But you know what? What is Linux? I I loved your episode last week uh, of Linux Unplugged, where you guys were meditating on what exactly is Linux? What's the future of desktop Linux? I wish I had called in because I have the answer, Wes. It's called Windows LDAs. You can run Bash. You can run Ruby. You can run Haskell. I think Windows 10 is one of the more interesting Linux distributions I've seen in a long time. Are you just trying to troll me, Mr. Dominic? No. I, so I have been using the Penguin. It's spelled... I, I actually meant to ask them why they spell it P-E-N instead of, you know, the way I think it should be spelled. But um, So it is a commercial. It's 10 bucks on the Microsoft Store. Um, basically, version of the subsystem for... I'm sorry, the Windows Linux subsystem, right? That's what it is. Right. So the the, uh, yeah. the mode of uh, the NT kernel that can emulate a whole bunch of Linux system calls, and then you can run all kinds of software that targets Linux natively on Windows. That's right. And I have to say, it works. Now, for those who don't know, maybe we should take just like a little skip back. So there are the Windows Linux, Windows subsystem for Linux, which the name is hard for me to say for some reason. WSL, just, just go, go with that. So WSL has multiple flavors, right? There is the Ubuntu Suze, I think is there. And, um, doesn't, isn't Fedora in there now, too, or am I? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And, and Yeah, right. So basically, they've got this support in in the NT kernel now. And then with some open source tooling Microsoft's provided, you can package up a whole bunch of user land tools and then build it into an executable that can run in that mode. And then you basically get like a bash prompt just running in your Windows command line. Yeah, so you can basically run almost any non-GUI Linux application, right? So for instance, you could... You know, do all your scripting, your Rails development in uh, in WSL. Penguin is a Debian uh, flavored, I guess, derivative. Although I, I don't like the way that sounds, but it really is like a version of Debian that these folks offer for nine ninety nine. It is awesome. It I have had no problems with it, um, and I'm I'm going to challenge you, and then I'm going to hand it over to you. Us, what is a Linux desktop? If I have the command line, if I can run Linux binaries, assuming the right architecture, right? So x86. Um, why is that not like a viable thing for? But I'm particularly thinking of our younger listeners. And in fact, I, I, I owe someone an apology. About a year ago, we had a listener email into the show um, who is a local university student here. I think at University of Tampa or USF, like, it doesn't really matter, telling Chris and I that we should consider the uh, WSL because that's what they all use in school now. Why? Because they have proprietary Windows applications they have to use for some of their classes, but their comp sci classes are taught um, on Bash effectively, right? The command line. I think that's the future. I think when you and I are in the old folks' home with Chris playing Name That Name That Hair, all the kids are going to be running some weird, weird NT Linux kernel mishmash. 
Okay. See, no, that's interesting. I, I am. I do like it. I mean, it's great that you, you suddenly have this whole, you know, open source ecosystem of tooling that everyone's familiar with. And having set up some development environments, looking at you, Python on Windows, it's not an experience I would want to want to repeat, especially compared to just you know, apt install Python or or, or whatever operating system you're using. Um, I don't know if I see it as like totally the future. I don't. I don't. I can see it as long as Windows remains. Dominant. I think what's going to happen long term on the desktop. Not that Windows is going anywhere. Are we moving away from the desktop? I guess I can see more of a workstation use. But for the hybrid world of, I have Windows for X reason. Having WSL that exists seems awesome because you might need it for hardware support. You might need it because some proprietary application that can only run on Windows and doesn't emulate well. It gives you access to lots of stuff. And I guess you're right. If 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 it's not Chromebooks, it's not OS X. Mac OS, excuse me. Maybe WSL is the best we can hope for. Is that is that the the world that we want? Maybe not. But is it better than just being stuck on Windows with no subsystem at all? Well, I think we can all agree to that. I mean, don't you think there's value, particularly for the audience of this show, to say, you know what? Every once in a while, you do have to like run the operating system that your end users are running, and maybe you don't want to like partition your drives because. You know, and NVMe drives are stupidly small most of the time when you get them. And like, if you're running Linux anyway, like, honestly, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just like too ignorant of the current Linux community, even though I run it every day. I like the GUI apps I use on Linux are all like Electron apps for the most part, right? I mean, obviously Firefox isn't blah, blah, blah. But right. But that's just a browser, either a browser or an Electron app or a terminal. At least right. That, that's basically true for myself as well. Right. When I'm working in Linux, I'm effectively working in Bash or some other, you know, terminal-esque environment. Maybe we would be wise to consider, let's get all the app compatibility of Windows and still be able to do our work in the environment. Oh, and by the way, like maybe I'm like over-identifying just a little bit because I do have like a Windows application that I sell and support. So it is a huge pain in the ass when I like have to go dig out a Windows laptop. <laughs> mm, yes, no, that's fair. But I don't know with with you know with the rise of Electron, with like I believe, and I know this is like hot take alert, that on the command line, Linux is a superior environment. I wish Mac would get their shit together, but they they just won't. I mean, look, I'm going to take a little platform diversion here, but look at like Lutris, which is, uh, I, mean, I, I know you know what it is, but for the audience, the uh, cross-platform uh, play Windows game on Linux app that's now in the Pop! OS store. We're, we're jumping through all kinds of hurdles to make that stuff work. So are you, are you just proposing we, we should just switch it up and go the opposite route? Well, I'm proposing it's a two-horse race, right? That none of that stuff even exists on Mac OS. Mm, so yeah, you, yeah you, you're right. You don't even have that option. Where on Linux, yes, you have to jump through the hoops. And I don't know, like, why not have the Windows Action Show and just talk about different versions of the WSL all day? Why not, you know, why don't we all get the Windows logo tattooed on our butts? I mean, I'm just saying. I, I think uh, Mr. Martin Wimpress made an interesting point in that episode of Linux Unplugged. And, and he talked ostensibly as identifying essential modifiability with the Linux desktop okay. that you can that you could re- recompile everything that you want that you have full control that it is by and large free software that you can play with that you can do with and especially in when the Windows 10 world right like for all the good things that Microsoft has done for all the improvements that exist in Windows 10 including the subsystem it's also very much become like an online 
you know, in, intensely datafied, sending yeah. all sorts of metrics, it, it, and it's licensed, right? So you, it's not your software. You might be able to run all sorts of neat free software on it, but it philosophically feels like a different way of doing computing. Now, that might not matter when all you want to do is just run Bash, but knowing, you know, the philosophy of the people behind Bash, it does feel like a little bit of a of a mental conflict at times. And I, I actually don't believe what I've been arguing. I'm just trying to set up the argument right. There's also like a lot of reasons you wouldn't want to use Windows. Um, one, it's very old. The anti-kernel, it's probably due for some significant rework. Uh, two, I, I don't like any operating system that pre-installs Candy Crush. <laughs> like, I know that's trivial, but it's kind of like, I, it, it feels cheap in a way, which I know I'm starting to sound like Mark Warman, so I'll stop. But yeah, no, I mean, having said that, though, Wes, there are a lot of college kids. And in fact, I'd love for our younger listeners to reach out. Like, is this just a weird thing that University of Tampa, the kid pinged me, um, is doing? Or is this like something that other schools are actually actively putting forward? I mean, it it does seem like it would make sense. Schools are already, you know, many of them have have deals with Microsoft or other, you know, vendors that that ship Windows. And in particular, you know, university machines often have to be multi-purpose, right? They support all kinds of different curriculums and, and classes and applications that might be needed, whether that's some fancy, you know, Mathematica program for the, for the math students or uh, Adobe Suite for the design students. So in that sense, I think it is, I mean, it is very pragmatic. And one of the strengths of the free and open source software world is that we can do that, right? You can you can take all that stuff now. You can run it on Linux, or even before we had this subsystem, you know, if you if you learn how to use GIMP on on Linux, you can use it almost just the same on Windows. Where I'm curious is I'm curious to see where Chromebooks play as they've added more and more Linux support. Now I, I think it'll be slightly different in that it's not quite the same, at least currently, level of like workstation, right? You can have like a really beast mode. Windows machine that you could also yeah. run the subsystem on. And, and Chromebooks don't really target that, but they are heavily targeting that same education sector. And in both of those cases, regardless of the, you know, the heritage, it's, it's kind of the same thing. You have a proprietary-ish operating system that, you, that run as, as a black box that you can't really change. And then you're given this little window into the world of free open source and quote unquote Linux. Into the world of freedom. It sounds like you're having a pretty good time using it, though. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if you think, have you spent any time playing with alternatives to Penguin, which used to be called W-Linux. Um, Penguin, I guess, is a combination of Penguin, which is the Japanese word for Penguin. Yeah. And then they added W back in there because, yay, Windows. So it's just pronounced Penguin. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I checked out the Ubuntu one. It's fine. Uh, the Penguin one, I mean... Basically, it's a Debian base, and they do a lot of the setup for you. They make it much easier to deal with, like, your Windows drives. Um, by drives, I mean directories and directory structure. And, you know, for 10 bucks, the conveniences make a lot of sense if you are stuck on Windows, right? Yeah, and really, I think when it was first announced, there was a lot of skepticism, at least from the, the, the Linux side of things, because this is all, you know, it's all free stuff. It's based on free stuff. Like, where is this value add coming from? But to your point, I, th- I think that's true. And especially if you're already in this super pragmatic zone of using the subsystem because you're just trying to get work done, then yeah, maybe maybe $10 isn't so much to know that you're supporting uh, you know, a business and community around this stuff so that it can continue, continue to grow, 
get better and you can continue to take advantage of it. That's right. And one day we will have a pure Linux distro from Microsoft. Well, okay. Since you've been having so much fun with this, I got a pick for you, Mike, that uh, be curious to see what you think about. It's called HTTP Prompt, an interactive command line HTTP client. It's in the Python repository, so it's just a pip install away. Maybe you've used stuff like um, HTTPy. Have you, have you heard of that one? I have not. What does that do? Well, it's like um, a glorified curl that has fancy colored output and has an easier syntax to get used to. This is like that, but even better. It's an interactive command line. So it's like a REPL for doing HTTP requests, which I find super interesting and useful. And man, they've done a really good job of like tab completing and fancy curses menus that pop up. So not only you get lots of color and stuff, but it's super easy to modify stuff. It also has HTTP2 support. You can look at all the headers. You can change them and modify a request and then resend it and then and then look at what the response details are. Now, of course, you can do lots of this stuff like with like web inspectors or just on the command line with curl or any other tool or in your favorite programming language. But it's not always that ergonomic. And it seems like HTTP prompt has they put in a lot of work to just make it easy. Like it has tons of cookie support. There's open API and swagger integration pipelines like Unix style and output redirection. Like it's just it seems like an incredible tool. If you do all kinds of HTTP stuff, maybe you're debugging a problem with a, a service or you're just designing something new. I only just found out about it this morning, so I've, I played with it a bit. I'm excited. I think it's going to remain in my tool belt. That actually sounds really, really cool. I like that a lot. Well, good, because uh, now you've got some homework. Oh, no. Yeah, I know, right? But uh, that's good. I'll, I'll be curious to see what you think of it, see if it falls into use, and curious to see how you continue to enjoy uh, Penguin. Oh, no, I wiped out Windows after three days. Are you kidding me? Oh, is that right? <laughs> oh, I didn't make that. I didn't make that clear. Sorry. Yeah, no. So maybe we should just jump backwards for a second. Um, it makes it less painful to run Windows, but like, I I think Chris even liked the tweet. I think he's in the chat room. He can, if he's still listening, jump in and be like, "Yeah, I forgot." And this is gonna make me sound so stupid. So I, I can't wait for the feedback. I forgot that like, you know, so okay, on a new Linux install, I can like just like get my stuff running and like do what it is I need to do, right? Mm, yes, just get up from nothing, easy, fast, not an insane number of reboots. Right, basically the same on Mac, right? I mean, let's let's be fair. Windows, like, there are so much resource contention when you first install Windows that I could not figure out why the damn machine kept crashing on me. Wait, like actually crashing? Yeah, like freezing up, locking up. Ugh. And then I um, tweeted it, and uh, one of our listeners, Sean, wrote, uh, wrote back. He's like, um, is that a new install of windows i said yeah i just you know installed it yeah you know you need to like let it update several times and like go away for a while sure enough i gave it an hour and yeah that's yeah it's amazing how bad that is like there's lots of stuff especially like the enterprise where it's great to administer windows and you can tell they've they've thought about administering it but setting it up is just such a pain now of course you can go and use all their tools to automate and and that but even then the update process is just incredibly painful almost every single time i have to engage with it yeah it's like i don't understand and i would love to hear like to people who do what i do like independent developers who are windows people what happens when you're me and you like destroy a laptop and you need to immediately get up and running are you just hosed for a while like is that it's like because like just the setup like everything takes forever to install visual studio is like this is 
30 gigs and you know <laughs> yeah and it's hard to automate and there's different procedures and, well, and it's all sounds gooey. like an e- yeah it's all right. gooey it's an exi maybe this one's an msi and you have to go fi- fetch it for from right. another source and sure there's like some tools that can help automate some of those stuff right bundled installers or or chocolatey or, or whatever you're using but it's never going to cover all the tools you need yeah i don't even know what to say i mean maybe we're just missing something because we're not windows people but I, yeah, I'd be curious to hear of, um, yeah. of our, our Windows listeners out there. Uh, coder.show slash contact. Let us know what you love about it, why it works for you, or maybe you've just got some pro tips from Mike on how to have a better experience using Windows. Well, the way I did that was I plugged in a Pop! OS ISO and I hit reformat drive. Hey, it was a lot better. Boom! Yep, yep. I love it. That's that's probably the way to go. Problem solved. And uh, if, if maybe you're, you're trying to learn like a little bit more about Linux because you've been convinced by our discussion today or you know linux is just great possibly you're trying to learn some developer stuff like uh catching up on your python for instance oh boy got good news for you linux academy's yearly deal is back limited time only linuxacademy.com 2.99 for the whole year that's a whopping 33 percent off when you break it down like the monthly price that makes a lot of sense if you want to learn you want to well you know a, a catalog of stuff that you can go check out and use Now's the time to do it. It's just going to cost you more in the future. So uh, why not save a few and get started learning some stuff? Well, that's going to do it for today's show. But if you want more, well, coder.show. And if you want more from Jupiter Broadcasting, well, jupiterbroadcasting.com. We've got a shiny new, let's say, new-ish website that you could go check out. Um, lots of good stuff. In particular, maybe go check out the latest Linux action news where Chris and Joe break down all the stuff that's happening. I had not had time to really dig into all of Google's announcements about about their cloud stuff, and I didn't really have to because they just explained it for me. So that's super handy. If you're interested in what's happening with Linux and open source, linuxactionnews.com slash 101 is the latest episode. If you just don't have time for that, or maybe you want to interact more directly, we're also both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne, and Mike, you're... At Dumanuko, and check out themadbotter.com if you need anyone converted from Windows to Linux. Beautiful. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>